This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. The thought of being in a crowd can stir up different responses for different people. For some, being in a crowd equals the excitement of a big social event, as you jump to the music with thousands of others at a concert, or celebrate with tons of people at a party, or brush up against tons of interesting people at some festival. Crowds can mean Christmas shopping, or the busy hallways of a high school where you can run into your friends, or people watching in a busy location where many are coming and going. A crowd can mean the thrill of traveling, rushing through airports and stopping at familiar sites, everyone trying to catch their best selfie to post online, positioning themselves to make it look like there is no crowd there for the photo. Some find the crowd thrilling, full of life, energy, activity, and opportunity. For others, the thought of being in a crowd is not something positive. To them, these large groups of people can be stressful and raise anxiety. Crowds test patience and long lines. They're uncomfortable as others encroach on your personal space, like the never-ending TSA line or the chaos of Black Friday, or the fear of losing a child in the crowd, so you grip their hand and your purse tighter. Being in a crowd for some means dealing with people, and thus more opinions and conflicts and issues to deal with. Since COVID, we have been told to avoid crowds, and some have had a hard time adjusting to going back to crowded events and situations, preferring instead to make social distancing a permanent lifestyle choice. And crowds can leave some feeling vulnerable, as crowded events like concerts and parades have become dangerous with more and more attacks, because you never know who is in the crowd and what their intentions are. And for those who are not so fond of crowds, they can only be handled in short bursts and then a much-deserved retreat is in order. Whatever your take on crowds, you're bound to be in one from time to time, by choice or by default, since the world is approaching 8 billion people and few of us live on deserted islands. Even on a recent trip home to Hawaii, the post-COVID travel crowds were clear to see, and while not a bustling metropolis, there were definitely more people than I remembered on the island. And while you once might have enjoyed a few minutes on a scenic hike to yourself, or felt pretty alone on a beach if you got there early enough or stayed late enough, it seemed this time like people were everywhere, and it was hard to find a moment alone away from the crowds. God created us in a garden. How peaceful it must have been. Adam alone, then with Eve, and as they enjoyed the wide open spaces, the beauty of the garden, walking in the cool of the day, a private audience with God the Creator. But God himself said that it was not good for man to be alone. And he gave them one another and told them to be fruitful and multiply. And the Bible records the genealogies as man obeyed the call and filled the earth. So there are times for solitude and times to engage with others, times to be an individual and times to live among the masses. Jesus knew both and made the most of both. As we get back to the Gospel of Mark, the crowds, or multitudes as they're referred to, seem to be more and more the the norm as the word of Jesus spreads. And the fans gather to get more of him, and the opponents press in to investigate him. And we pick up on this podcast in Mark 3, verse 7. The last time in Mark, we looked at the Sabbath, that God made it for man, not to catch man in some impossible-to-fulfill legalistic logistics challenge like the Pharisees had turned it into, but to bless man with a break from the hustle and bustle of life. To take purposeful pauses to enjoy the relationship with God for which we were created— 
We stopped last time in a scene in the synagogue where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, the very thing the religious leaders were hoping he'd do so as to gain ammo in their plight to bring him down. And we were told in Mark 3, verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out immediately and plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The tension is growing, and the opportunities too, and Jesus' life and ministry grow more crowded with conflict, needs, and demands. But Jesus navigates it all so wonderfully, as he keeps his focus clear through it all. He knows his purpose, his call, his identity. When we, when we moved into adolescence, many of us were warned about the influence of the crowd, not to get caught up in what everyone else was doing, but to keep a level head and not to lose direction by caving into the peer pressure of the crowd. Jesus knew his course. Jesus knew the plan. And no matter what the crowds around him wanted or sought or demanded, Jesus was able to stay the course. So when the Pharisees stepped out of the synagogue to gang up with the Herodians, who had not been allies to this point, to start plotting how they might destroy Jesus, Jesus takes a different course of action, as we see in Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, it says, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. The Pharisees and Herodians gang up, and Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea. At this point, it's their go-to place, their stomping grounds. It's where he called some of his key disciples, and they grew up near, on, and in that sea. So they leave the heated boiling point of the synagogue and withdraw to the sea. That's where it all started. And they go back to that place, before the crowds, before the conflict, back to the basic call, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The word withdraw is anarchoreo. It means to withdraw, so as to leave room. So put some space between people. Give them some breathing room. That's what it means there, withdraw. It can also refer to those who through fear seek some other place or shun sight, to not want to be in the spotlight, but to go in incognito. Now, Jesus had no fear. He wasn't hiding from anything, running away from anything. But he may have feared this conflict would get too heated too soon, since their plan to destroy him would ultimately put him on the cross. And it's not the Father's time for that just yet. So Jesus makes himself invisible. He gets out of sight with his disciples to the sea, back to where it all started. Simpler times for sure. This world is full of conflict, confrontation, and things that grate against us. And it is key that we withdraw often. To not get caught up in it all, to not get swept away in it all, but to withdraw and get back to the basics. In Christian circles, we sometimes go on a retreat to get back to the basics. We may even have a quiet time to refocus at the start of the day or some point therein. It's important to go back and touch base with the simplicity of who God is, of who we are, and what he has done for us and what we're called to, lest we get caught up in fights and battles and conflicts that just distract us from what our Heavenly Father has for us. Maybe it's time for you and I to withdraw again, to find some moments or place, or even just the mental space to get some clarity once again and get back to basics.
to withdraw from the busyness and clutter and static and interference and come face to face with Jesus once again. Nose in the Bible, ear turned to heaven, and to hear again the simple call that Jesus has for our lives. I recently spent a couple hours in the car, driving to my in-laws where my wife had been for a few days, while I stayed home and worked on giving the living room a fresh coat of paint. It was a couple days of work with moving furniture, prepping to paint, painting, doing the trim, installing new fans, long days in the hot, hot days of summer. It was 112 the other day, and I was beat, burnt out, and kind of over the isolation of a few days of working dawn, dawn to way past dust to get things done. So as I drove, I was ready for some social interaction. Three days of painting, listening to podcasts, worship music, and a full day of doing my professional development for the upcoming school year and listening to modules about hazardous materials, child abuse, suicide prevention, Title IX, and a bunch of other uber dry topics. I wanted to interact with people, even if over Bluetooth. Well, I had a few people in my heart that I decided to call. Spontaneous, but just a quick phone call or two to catch up on my drive there to the lake. And I tried a handful of people and no one answered. So I tried a few more and no one answered. And finally, I gave up and thought, gosh, I guess I have no one to talk for the, to for the next two hours on this drive. And it was like the Lord said, well, you can talk to me. I'm right here. It's true, isn't it? Jesus created us for a relationship, one that he died for so that we could fellowship with him. He wants to spend time with us, to meet with us, though often because he's not right there physically, we can't see him. We kind of forget that and we kind of neglect it. Fellowshipping with man, it's truly God's desire. Genesis tells us that creation was good, but it was very good once man was created. And God even took a Sabbath, not that he was tired or exhausted from the work, but he rested from the work because now he had man to fellowship with. I remember my dad working long hours on building custom homes. When it was in the crunch time of a project, he'd be there dawn to dusk. It seems like we wouldn't see him much during those small stretches. Out early in the morning, driving off in his iconic 51 Ford pickup truck, then home just in time for dinner usually. But he was working hard. And sometimes if we were out and about in the day, we'd grab him lunch and take it by and he'd stop working, even if just for a few minutes. Eat something, but spend a few minutes with us catching precious time with his family in the middle of the day. Sometimes he'd show us the house, explain where things were going to be when the house was all said and done, and we'd ooh and ah at the progress and the work and, and diligence. But he'd take the moments that we had there with him. And there was more work to be done once we drove off the dusty job site. How God enjoyed resting on the Sabbath, ceasing his work, to enjoy fellowship with us. It's something he longs for, made provision for, removing the barrier and wall of sin that separated us from that fellowship. I don't get it, but God's day is fuller, brighter, when we engage in fellowship with him. And while God invites us into fellowship, we fill our lives with activity and appointments and activities and people, and many of us can't be inactive or alone or without something on the agenda. And if we do find our times in moments like that, we can always jump onto social media and feel like we're kind of being social and interacting with others. But what about just withdrawing with Jesus? Just taking a few minutes or hours or days even to withdraw with him. Paul had been a Pharisee, bound in the work of the law. He thought he knew God, but he really did not have a relationship with him. So much so that when he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus and the bright light shone and he was met with a booming voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had to ask, who are you, Lord? He did not know the one who had called out to him. He had not fellowshiped with him before. He had to be introduced. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. 
Then Saul withdrew for three days, not eating, not drinking, blinded, fellowshipping for the first time with God ever. We are told in Acts 9 that when Ananias is summoned to go and pray for Saul to receive his sight, that Saul is praying. I bet he was. Saul previously was a professional prayer, but it was all a show, no fellowship with God, just a one-way monologue, not a two-way dialogue, no fellowship involved. Saul enjoyed the sweet fellowship that came with repentance and forgiveness. He didn't even mind retreating to Arabia for a few years as he dove deep into the Old Testament scriptures and allowed Jesus to reveal himself. As Paul saw Jesus all throughout it, something he had overlooked when he had read the Old Testament prior. Paul never seemed to get over this. He even wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 1 of his first epistle to them, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's what we're called to, to fellowship with his Son, to be in a relationship, a day-to-day walk with him, not to religion, not to service primarily, not to duty and diligence, but fellowship. And when that fellowship is real and authentic and fruitful, all the other aspects we consider to be the, quote, Christian life, they come forth naturally, flowing out of a relationship. Jesus loved these disciples, so they withdrew to the sea, something I imagine they all had looked forward to. There are some verses in the Old Testament book of Exodus that always intrigue me. They're in chapter 33. Moses and the nation of Israel are on the move a camping trip like no other, two million plus on a backpacking trip through the wilderness. They have seen the sea part, and they walk through it. The enemy was defeated, and they got the Ten Commandments. They had that issue with the golden calf, and they are headed to the promised land. And we read, And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And it goes on, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What a concept. The Lord speaking to us face to face as to a friend. I mean, we don't even do that very much anymore. Speak face to face with others. It's deep communication that the Lord offers us, available to us. Since the way was made open, the veil torn in two. Do we withdraw into that place of meeting with him? Or do we withdraw into other things more readily? into people, activities, distractions, entertainment, substances, turning to those to escape the conflicts of life rather than withdrawing and getting back to basics. It takes stepping back sometimes and making a decision to withdraw from the crowded things we turn to in life and get with Jesus. It might mean canceling that first morning appointment or skipping the workout or turning off the TV or parking the car for 15 minutes at the park before heading home. It might mean choosing to wait 10 minutes before answering the email or having the kids unload the groceries while you take a few minutes in the backyard, just you and Jesus. Withdraw with Jesus. It's always blessed. I remember one of our first New Year's in Slovenia. New Year's is a kind of a big thing in Europe, and we had planned a great evening of getting together with everyone, having some food, some games, even some spiritual stuff. I think we even did some worship. Then just before midnight, we were to head downtown, where the whole town was gathered, celebrating the passing of the old year and beginning of the new. Fireworks, toasting, like a small-scale Central European version of Times Square, but not quite, but still. So we were all together, and for some of the young people in the new church, it was a big deal their first New Year's as believers, leaving some of their old groups and celebrations, and we were going to ring it in together, Jesus style. 
And as we finished up our December 31st shenanigans at the team's apartment and put on our coats and scarves and mittens to head out into the late December cold downtown to celebrate with the multitudes, one of the missionaries on our team hesitated and decided to stay back at the apartment alone. Well, when some of the young new believers prodded a bit, this missionary just felt the need to withdraw with Jesus. It had been a full afternoon and evening of fun and food and fellowship and a great time as a group. But as the year drew to a close, this missionary felt drawn to draw close to Jesus at the expense of heading downtown to ring in the new year with all of us and all of the town. Most of us were cool with it. Yeah, fine. Catch you later. See you next year, LOL. But not everyone got it. It was like, wait a second, aren't we all supposed to celebrate together? We started the party together. We can't, you can't bail now. Peer pressure, come on, be one of us. Let us all do this together. Well-meaning and good intentions. But this missionary felt called to draw close to Jesus in fellowship, something filling that none of us could give to them. It can be hard to take the step to withdraw, to step back, to cut out, to walk away, even forever so briefly. And so we don't. Easier to please man, to try to fill ourselves with temporal things that are fleeting and don't last. But let's all challenge ourselves to heed the promptings to withdraw with Jesus when the need or opportunity or prompting arises. It's what Jesus does at this point. They leave the synagogue and go back to the sea. Now, good intentions for sure, but there probably wasn't much of a window to get focused. Because as we read in these verses and pay attention to the emphasis I give, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, and a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Word gets out that that is where Jesus and his group are he- is headed. And a multitude, a great multitude follows him there. Three times this is emphasized. It was a ton of people. Some commentators estimate it could have been thirty or 40,000 people. I mean, this is the state fair that many people coming out from everywhere. Judea, that's the southern part of Israel. Jerusalem, that's the capital city, the bigwigs. Idumea, that's the southeast portion. Jordan, we would say today. Beyond the Jordan, even. People crossed the border to come. From Tyre and Sidon, the northwest, it was the coast. Today, it's Lebanon. In a world of no cars, no public transportation, no Ubers, feet and donkeys and camels, they came. A multitude came. Why? Because they heard how many things he was doing. In every multitude, there are a million needs. Not anyone has the same as anyone else. People from all walks, all directions, all backgrounds, all directions, all needing something. And while those needs might vary from person to person, depending on time in life or place in life or season of life, all the specific needs can be met in one general need. It's a need for Jesus. In those few verses where the word multitude is translated for us, there are actually two Greek words for multitude. The first is in verses 7 and 8. It's the Greek word plethos. It means a great number of men or things, a whole lot. In verse 9, when he says that a boat should be prepared in case he needs to escape and not get crushed, the word for multitude is achlas. It means a crowd, a throng, a casual collection of people, like a group of troops, but not all lined up in an order, sort of a disorganized, chaotic grouping. There was person upon person, need upon need, not much order to it, but they were all pressing in because Jesus was the answer to their every need. In the Revelation, John sees this in Revelation 7. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And one of the elders in that heavenly scene tells John, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This multitude, this disorganized crowd that seems to be thrown together, they are those who have come to Jesus during a time of great trial and testing on earth. John looks, and it's a hodgepodge. There's no specific grouping or demographic. There's no uniform or marking or anything that shows some common thread. It's just a bunch of randomness. But they all found their need in Jesus. As we move in this world, we pass multitudes day by day, at work, on the freeway, in the mall, at the gym, all unique people with unique needs. Much of it really hard, challenging, heavy stuff, and people are trying to get by, trying to get through. But no matter what their script looks like, the answer is Jesus. Their need, your need, my need, it's Jesus. When Moses was being called to face Pharaoh with the message, let my people go, he asked, who should I tell them sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It was the name Jehovah translated there. I am who I am. It can mean the becoming one. And I love that view of it because God becomes all that we need. All our needs are fulfilled in him. He's a one-stop shop. We need look nowhere else. How simplifying it was for their world of polytheism, in which cultures where you had to figure out which God, God with a small G, to turn to with which need, and with which offering or prescribed approach. Man, how confusing, how thick that manual must have been to figure all that out. How much better a one-stop shop. Aaron and I have a few grocery stores that are in our route to get all that we need as a household. Some places have certain products we use, others have others, and it takes some time and driving to make the rounds and get it all. Especially because most of them, those stores, they're not really near our home. So we have to plan it out, map it out, even look at the weather sometimes in Oklahoma, and pack a cooler with ice packs, since some places we shop at have cold or frozen items, and we don't get home without, with those items without spoiling them when it's too hot, like it's been this summer at the time of this recording, 112 last week, about 105 today. It takes planning and shopping around to get all that we need. And my wife truly embodies the Proverbs 31 woman, where it says in verse 14, she is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. That's her bringing food from afar as she makes the rounds with the cooler and ice packs. How much easier if we could get it all at one shop. All of the various items in our shopping list. If it all was in one store, even better, not just one store, but on one aisle or one shelf even. Man, if she sends me to Walmart, it depends which Walmart. They put things in different places depending on which specific location you go to. And I can never remember which location has which items in which part of the store. So I do circles. It can take me forever. How blessed the Gary home would be if it was all found in one place. That is our God. All our needs are found in him. He is Jehovah the becoming one who becomes all that we need. And ultimately he became our salvation, our greatest need. All our needs are met in Jesus, a one-stop shop. And this crowd comes from all over thronging Jesus. It's getting intense. And he says to his group, get a boat ready. We may need to make a getaway. I love that Jesus makes a contingency plan, but he doesn't send them away. He met their need as he will meet yours, whatever it is, if you just come to him. 
As Paul wrote to the Philippians in 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Jesus does not escape the crowd. He presses in, and we read verses 10 through 19. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. He didn't need the demonic PR, even though they spoke truth in the fact that he was the Son of God, even when the crowds were still trying to figure out just who Jesus was. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain, there he is again, withdrawing, and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Jesus had disciples, students who were learning from him by this point. But now he appoints 12 to be his apostles. Notice it says to be with him. He wanted to withdraw with them often, but also those who will be sent. That's what apostle means. And he equips them with power to do what he calls them to do. It is getting apparent that the crowds are getting to be too much. I mean, they had a boat ready at the last event. Jesus needs to lay low for a bit, but the ministry needs to continue. And now things shift into another gear as Jesus begins prepping them to carry on his ministry. Jesus had just a three-year window. The cross will come sooner than many would have guessed. And a lot of what we see in Mark is Jesus discipling the disciples, giving them opportunities to grow in their faith and put into practice what they believe. So here they are no longer sidekicks and spectators. They're apostles, those who are sent. To do what? The same things that Jesus was doing. This is multiplying ministry, and they're ready for it. And Jesus will often challenge us to the same things. First, when we're getting grounded in our faith and learning a lot in our faith, we're kind of receiving quite a bit. But then at some point, he says, all right, it's time to step up. It's time to get moving. I've got something for you to do. I'm pointing you to something in my kingdom. You're ready for it, and you need to do it. Jesus surprised them a few years later in that upper room that last night before the cross when he said in John 14, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Jesus working through those that he sends, as the Holy Spirit enables those who serve Jesus to to do the work of Jesus. It started with those twelve and ultimately poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, as we the church are sent out to be the body of Christ. The hands, the feet, the arms, the mouth, the heart, Jesus working through us. I love there where it says, He called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Jesus has sifted through the crowds, even the group of disciples, and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. An invitation, and it was accepted. They came to him of their own volition, but Jesus called them. This was an honor. Now, that means he called Judas too, and you can wrestle with that if you want. He wanted Judas too. His purpose is ultimately fulfilled. But more than that, Jesus called you, which means he wanted you. Brain explosion. I don't get it, but I'm grateful. And when I knew it was God calling me, I came to him. Did you? Have you? Jesus calls us. What a wonderful thing. We looked earlier at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.9. 
God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus calls faithfully, and then it is up to us to respond and come to him to receive that invitation. I think we can rest in that, that God is faithful. He repeatedly and consistently calls us to Jesus, giving opportunities, sending people, opening doors. It's his desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So that person you want to know Jesus, God is faithful. That person you recently shared with, God was faithful. He'd been working on that one for a while. That person who rejected the message or is walking away from God, God is faithful. He will keep calling. That person who passed away recently that you were unsure about, God was faithful, inviting them repeatedly into fellowship with his son that they may have, and they may have responded to that invitation. Jesus called and they came to him here in these verses. What's Jesus been calling to you lately? Go, don't leave him hanging. So the apostles are appointed and they are right back in the action. Mark 3 verses 20 through 30. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people, that's his family, Mary and brothers and sisters, which we'll hear about in a bit. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And they aren't the only ones. Look who else here. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. You know, Jesus finds this reasoning absurd. He can't ignore it, and he doesn't want the crowd or the newly appointed apostles to get confused and believe this jibber-jabber, that his power is actually some demonic manifestation and not from heaven. So it goes on. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. Jesus says, the reasoning doesn't stick. If I were from the devil, then why am I casting out demons? Think it through. That's counterproductive. He explains furthermore, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Think about it, guys. I'm tying up demons because I'm taking back the kingdom. But then Jesus puts the exclamation point on all this talk that has been going on and exposes an even bigger thing that they should be considering rather than the senseless reasoning they were preoccupied with. He clearly says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. This was the warning, the unforgivable sin. All sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, Jesus said there. Rest on that for a second. All sins will be forgiven or can be forgiven. There is nothing that God is not willing to forgive. All sins, the murder you committed, the genocide you took part in, the racism you were guilty of, the sexual promiscuity and perversion, the temper you lost, the violence you engaged in, the hypocrisy you lived, all sins will be forgiven. John wrote in his first epistle, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why do we get stuck on this unpardonable sin? What is it? What won't God forgive? It says, He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. The audience that Jesus had, 
They had so much evidence in those days. The things that Jesus taught, the things that Jesus did, the people who walked away transformed. Even the demons were testifying, saying that Jesus was the Son of God. Soon they would have the death, the burial, the resurrection, and many would still not believe. They would reject the continual witness of the Holy Spirit inviting people to receive forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Spirit will testify of Jesus, saying, You need Jesus. Jesus is the way. And I believe the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to call the Spirit a liar, to reject the testimony he faithfully and repeatedly and powerfully gives, and to reject ultimately that Jesus Christ is God's way of forgiveness and salvation. That cannot be forgiven. Because to reject Jesus means you are still in your sins. Again, we read in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. He made a way. He had a plan for salvation through Jesus' work on the cross. And if we reject that, we remain in our sins. That is the only sin God cannot forgive, rejecting Jesus. I think think that's why there's such a push for universalism, to think that it's all relative, to be open to say, well, who am I to really say what is right? Maybe all paths really do lead to God. That's deception, because to reject Jesus as the way, the truth, the life, that's God's only option for salvation. So Satan has robbed the key to forgiveness of all sin if we reject Jesus. Some worry and freak out that they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In my opinion, if you are worried about it, if you're concerned about it, you probably have not committed it. It's the hardened, the rejected, the calloused one who no longer cares or mocks. That's who I'd say is skipping out on fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one who God has faithfully been calling you to fellowship with. It's something to consider. We finish with a slightly awkward part of the story. Remember, we saw back in verse 21, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now here in Mark 3, verses 31 through 35, then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus had family. Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage after Jesus was born of a virgin birth. And then they had other kids. And this family is outside. Jesus, come home. This is getting ridiculous. They didn't believe, we are told. James, the oldest of the other siblings, didn't believe until after the resurrection. Jesus appearing to him, he then became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He even wrote the New Testament book of James, many believe. But in this scene, Jesus, come home. We're not sure if you're off your rocker. <laughs> Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, he, they said to him. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother and my sister and mother. There are two crowds in what we have looked at. Those opposing, rejecting, questioning, resisting, and those accepting the call. Coming, gathering, receiving. A true inner circle, an outer circle. Even those, these closest of earthly relationships, Jesus' own family, there was a dividing line. Belief. 
Jesus spoke to another multitude by the sea in the Sermon on the Mount. And toward the end of that, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Jesus looks out on the crowd, but there is a distinction. Sheep and goats. Those accepting the call and those rejecting the call. Those headed to destruction and those who are saved from it. Redeemed and those rejecting redemption. Family and foe. It's a clear line of separation, and one we all need to consider, not just for ourselves, but for those that are around us all day, the multitudes that we interact with each and every day of our lives. How comforting to know, as Jesus said, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. God is faithful. We've been called into fellowship with his son, and what good news to know all sins will be forgiven unless we rejected Jesus Christ. The implications on either side are worthy of reflection and contemplation. Lord, we thank you that you gave us the promised Holy Spirit. Now move over our lives and give us clarity of mind and heart and spirit, sobriety to know where we stand, and to faithfully draw us into that right relationship. Thank you for the opportunity to be forgiven and cleansed and made new. Jesus, may we walk deeper with you and be faithful to call us to your side, both in the day-to-day and ultimately into eternity, Lord. May the powerful gospel save many, even now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.